Welcome to the 2021 wrap-up for the Joys of Binge Reading podcast, the show for everyone who got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next installment. I hope you've had a happy Christmas and that 2022 will hold more promise and prosperity for you than the one we're leaving behind us. I know I said last year that New Zealand tended to go to the beach over this period, but this year it's a little different for me. Dare I mention the word, the pandemic we've all been battling our way through. Because of it, I'm taking a nice, restful staycation at home, delaying any beach time until later in the summer. I'm pottering in my garden and thinking and planning for the new season. One big highlight of the year for us was posting our 200th episode in mid-December with Patty Callahan. Thanks to all our marvellous guests, the show has gone from strength to strength this year, with top international authors included in our mix of popular fiction for binge reading. The top 10 for this year is actually a top 11 because three authors scored exactly the same number of downloads. Would you believe it? And once again, we've got a wonderful mix of genres and nationalities from Australia to the US, from the UK to New Zealand, reflecting very well the international nature of our audience. 2021's top ranking shows include J.A. Jantz's crime series, Craig Johnson and William Kent Kruger's Regional Mysteries, Sarah Penner's standout thriller about a murderous apothecary, Leanna Morgan and Roselle Lim's heartwarming and magical romance, as well as engrossing historicals from Alison Pataki and Karen White, and wide-ranging women's fiction from Di Morrissey, Jan Moran and Belinda Alexandra. As I've explained in previous years, I'm not picking favourites because I value every author we have on the show. As usual, our selection is based solely on the number of episodes you chose to listen to and the number of downloads each one received. So you, our listeners, are the people doing the choosing. We've limited the period from December 1, 2020 to December 1, 2021 to give us time to pull it all together for a January release. In this show, we play excerpts from each of the top 11 episodes as it happens. So instead of having just two voices on the show, me and the guest, you'll be hearing from a dozen of them. And as usual, if any of these snippets spark your interest and they're from a show you missed out on, there will be links to make it easier for you to find them and tune in. So there'll be plenty of new people to keep you going over the holiday break. The show notes for this episode can, as usual, be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or you can find us on the Binge Reading Facebook page. Binge Reading, the best of 2021, will run for the first two weeks of January, and in the second part of the month, will run the best of all time, the pick of the first 200 episodes with a different list of authors. There's only one name that appears in both lists for the marvellous reason that most episodes continue to draw more downloads the longer they are up. Before we get to the top 10, I just want to mention we've got a giveaway draw for January. It's a bit different. Three ebook copies every week. Three every week of my holiday novella book bundle. Three novellas, a mix of mystery and Christmas romance set in historic New York, Hawaii and California. They're books four, six and eight in the Of Gold and Blood Mystery series 
enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Facebook page. Be in to win one of the three lucky copies going out every week in January. Offer closes January 31. But now we've got rid of the housekeeping. Here we are launching into the 2021 top 10 of your most popular episodes for binge reading for the year. Best-selling, much-loved crime fiction author J.A. Jantz, with more than 60 books and three different series, was our all-time favourite. Having J.A. as a guest, I especially enjoyed her frank opinions and her willingness to talk about traumatic situations, especially about the day her first husband hitchhiked home with a serial killer 20 minutes after he committed his latest crime, and how in a roundabout way that helped to launch her writing career. As J.A. explains, both she and her husband worked on the reservation. Her husband was hitchhiking home because J.A. was working late and needed the car. Thank goodness she wasn't the one who was hitchhiking with a serial killer. Here she is explaining what happened. I had to stay late after school and we were having company that night. So my husband went out and hitchhiked to get home to be there to greet our company. And on the reservation, there's no such thing as mass transit. Everybody hitchhiked, including the nuns from Tapawa. But it happened that the guy who gave him a ride home that day was a serial killer who murdered people at 20 minutes after two. And he gave my husband a ride home about 45 minutes after forcing his third victim off the highway at gunpoint, shooting her, raping her in front of her two small children and leaving her to die. And so we discovered that incident when we were going into town for dinner and were stopped at a roadblock. We heard someone talking about a man in a green car. And my husband said, a green car? I wonder if that's the guy who gave me a ride home today. And it turned out it was. So we were part of that investigation from the very beginning. J.A. goes on to talk about how that experience catapulted her into writing, about how the rumour that her first nine books were written by a retired Seattle detective came to arise and become a popular fiction, and why people tell her reading her books is like eating Fritos. Listen to the full episode for all of that extra information. Craig Johnson is a Wyoming rancher and a best-selling international author who writes westerns for people who may not normally read westerns. His fabulously popular Walt Longmire mystery series has also been turned into a top-rating six-season Netflix show of the same name. Craig set the Longmire series in a place he knows very well, but as he explains, there are major differences between him and his character. Major differences that Walt and I have are that Walt has had a lot of tragedies in his life. The biggest one, of course, being the death of his wife. And that's kind of had a long-term effect on him. I've had a really pretty wonderfully charmed existence. My very first book that I wrote, The Cold Dish, the very first Walt Longmire book, was picked up by Viking Penguin, big publisher back in New York. They took it and ran with it. We got on the New York Times bestsellers list. Warner Brothers came knocking and said, hey, we'd like to make a TV show out of uh, the series of books, which I highly questioned because making a TV show out of the sheriff of the least populated county in the least populated state in America, I don't know. I, didn't, I wasn't so sure that would work, but evidently it did, like that we're still on Netflix streaming. 
And we're one of the, I guess, the top 20 original content television shows, even three years or four years after they ceased production of Longmire. So I, I really don't have a lot to complain about. My life is is pretty charmed. Walt has had a difficult, a more difficult road to hoe. And uh, I think that makes our lives a little bit different. Craig goes on to explain that before he settled down on his Wyoming ranch and built his house, he'd been footloose and fancy-free for quite a long time, an ideal preparation, in his view, for going on to be a writer of popular fiction. Whenever you know I was you know a young man and thinking about what it was I wanted to do with my life and where I wanted to be and where I wanted to go, I traveled a lot. And maybe it's a massive rationalization for an ill-spent youth, but I think what it actually was my attempts to try and uh, garner as many experiences as I could to bring to the writing. Because I think some of the most boring writers I've ever read are, you know, the ones that go to these marvelous writing schools, but really don't have any kind of life experience to draw from. And for me, I was out there trying to get as much life experience as I could pack into about a 10-year period. William Kent Kruger is the acclaimed author of the Cork O'Connor mystery series, as well as some highly praised, more literary novels like Ordinary Grace and its sequel, This Tender Land. He's credited by many with being a master storyteller, and sometimes that's seen as being a contradiction with being a literary writer, but it's a description he owns proudly, as he explained when I asked him how he regards the creative act of storytelling. It's interesting that you should uh, raise this question because I just finished an essay for Crime Reads publication this morning, turned it in this morning uh, about, and I called it the storyteller's promise. You know, a lot of, I'm often called a writer uh, or more specifically a mystery writer, but the truth is I think of myself primarily as a storyteller. And I think as a storyteller, as I've said in the essay, I have, I have an obligation, kind of a sacred obligation to, uh, to speak the truths that are essential to who, who we are as human beings. And so I, you know, when I set out to write a story, sure, I want to entertain. I want to make sure that the reader has a good time. But I really try to get at, at deeper things, deeper issues. And so one of the things I do write about is family, because that fascinates me. We are all, we have all been part of a family. We grew out of those families. We've created families of our own. There are forces that seek to divide families, and there are forces that pull them back together. And as a storyteller, I want to tell the truths of those kinds of uh, dynamics. Justice is another issue that needs to be explored in an honest way. So I think it's the storyteller's obligation to seek out the truths that are common to all humanity and explore them as deeply and as honestly as we can. And Kent had a very interesting response when I asked him, is there one factor more than any other to which he'd attribute his success? His answer was perhaps not what the average author is likely to give. My wife, who has from the very first believed profoundly in, in supporting me in this dream that I've had of being a storyteller. And, you know, when, when, young, when young writers come to me and they ask me, what's the best piece of advice you have to offer a young writer? It's this. Marry somebody with a good job. My wife is an attorney, and so we haven't we haven't had to uh, exist on bread and water at all. My life struggled to, uh, to become a storyteller. Our next author in the best of 2021's top 10 binge reading is Leanna Morgan, a best-selling author of Montana-based sweet romance, 
with 55,000 followers on BookBub, running her highly successful indie publishing enterprise from Wellington, New Zealand. She's an accomplished businesswoman, as well as one of the nicest people on the planet. Leanna talked about how she switched to romance after a top career as a librarian, running four branch libraries and managing nearly 50 staff. What got her kick-started into romance? Of all things, Jenny, it was turning 40 because I decided that the last 10 years between 30 and 40 had gone so fast that I felt, felt as I blinked and missed the whole 10 years. So I decided I wasn't going to let that happen in the next 10 years before I turned 50. So I thought of one thing I wanted to do to kind of feel as I'd achieved something in that 10 years. So I decided to write a book. And that's how it all started. And Leanna enjoys injecting romance into her own life as well as into her books. She explains how the two came to be interwoven in this next excerpt. I seem to recall hearing about a trip that you and your husband made to the States to renew your wedding vows. Tell us about that. We had a wonderful time, Jenny. Tim and I were celebrating, must have been about our 25th wedding anniversary, and we decided to go to Las Vegas and um, as part of another small trip we were doing and get married with Elvis. So, well, renew our wedding vows with Elvis. So we were serenaded by this amazing man who impersonated Elvis and we had a big limousine ride and it was just fantastic. Our daughter was um, our flower girl and our son was our best man and mum was there to walk me down the aisle. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. Fantastic. And I think there's a link back to your very first book, isn't there? Didn't one of your characters get married at uh, Las Vegas? She did. Gracie got married at Las Vegas. So it was like a, a full circle of life, a coming around point. And it just felt wonderful to do that. And to, in my imagination, when I'd written that scene in Forever Dreams, it was just imagination. And, and again, doing a bit of research on the internet. But to do that ourselves, it was just magic. It was wonderful. Although her circumstances weren't quite as same as ours, so <laughs> Sarah Penner was one of those exceptions for binge reading, an author with a debut novel who shot to the top of the bestseller charts. And the fact her episode also finished up in the top 10 for the year shows that getting her on the show was something our audience also really enjoyed. Just an aside, we don't usually take debut authors. We usually say we like them to be multi-published just so there's plenty of choice for you to go and discover other things they've written. But Sarah's book, The Lost Apothecary, is a dual timeline thriller about a skilled healer who turns her gift to dark purposes. It was one of the most anticipated books of 2021, with everyone from CNN to opera giving it favourable mentions. First, we focused on the key question. Having a female serial killer as your central character is a risky proposition, especially for a debut author. Will readers want to read about such a dark character? And how do you create a protagonist that readers are likely to warm to? You make a good point. And when I began writing the story, I knew that I wanted Nella, the apothecary, to be somewhat morally gray. And of course, the book opens with her in her hidden apothecary shop, and it's very dark and has sort of a sinister feeling. And the reader quickly learns on page one that the apothecary is pulling together a poison. She's she's planning to poison someone for the purpose of killing them. And so 
I knew from the very early pages of the book that I was going to have to help the reader understand why she was doing this and also show a softer side to the apothecary. And so what I really aimed to do over the course of the novel is help the reader understand why the apothecary was so vengeful and the wounds emotionally that she had from her own betrayals in her life. But even more important than that, how she was setting out to help women who had also been betrayed and felt that they had no other resources available to them. Sarah went on to attend an Elizabeth Gilbert creativity workshop after reading Elizabeth's book on creativity, Big Magic. Elizabeth, as I'm sure most readers will know, is famous for her book, Eat, Pray, Love, which became a well-known film. Sarah said Big Magic and a live workshop she did with Elizabeth in Chicago was a game changer for her writing career. I asked her why. So really the key premise of Big Magic is about fear and how creative people, whether writers or pianists or painters or what have you, how you deal with fear. And I think uh, fear is also, when I say that, I'm also using that interchangeably with rejection. So that's every artist's greatest fear is rejection. And so the whole book is about how you have to just create while sitting next to fear. And she even pretends that you as an author are in a car traveling down a road And fear is like this person sitting in the passenger seat. And you really just have to get comfortable with that person sitting next to you for the entirety of your creative life and career. And so it was a really enlightening story for me. But what was even more enlightening was that she just happened to be in the city where I was living at the time, which is Wichita, Kansas, smack dab in the middle of the United States. And she was on tour. And she, uh, I had the opportunity to go see, listen to her talk about big magic. And she asked the audience a rhetorical question, which basically uh, she was asking us to think about our dreams and, and what sort of things we want to accomplish or pursue that we had not yet taken steps towards because of fear. And she said something to the effect of, if I returned one year from now, would you want to be sitting in the same chair, still scared and still having not taken any steps towards that dream? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to take that first step sooner rather than later. And it was just the right question at the right time for me. And really resonated with me. And within a couple of weeks, I had enrolled in my first writing class. I had started dabbling with a new story idea. And I always think back to that discussion and just how important and poignant that was for me at the time. We're taking a short break and we'll be right back. Just letting you know, we'll be posting weekly updates on the Binge Reading for Patreon supporters section, Getting to Know You Five Quickfire Questions. If you've got any interest in hearing the five quickfire questions from Karen White, Belinda Alexandra, William Kent Kruger, or Sarah Penner, then check into Binge Reading on Patreon. Join as a supporter for as little as a cup of coffee a month, and you'll have heaps of 
bonus content, as well as the satisfaction of knowing you're supporting the podcast and ensuring we've got a future. Check it out on www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. And you'll find all you need to know. But now back to our show. Jan Moran's story is one of moving from running a successful beauty care business to USA Today best-selling novelist, writing heartwarming women's fiction. Among her recent works is a trio of what she calls her sensory novels, stories centred around wine, perfume, and most recently, chocolate, with a book called The Chocolatier, a dual timeline story that moves between 1940s San Francisco and today and starts under the Giardelli sign in San Francisco. It moves on to Italy and Peru. Jan explains what attracts her to stories set in the 40s and 50s. I think that my mother and my grandmother, I remember their stories of those periods of time. My mother She was married in the 40s. My father was a pilot based in Newfoundland and used to ferry planes from North America to England via Greenland. And so I really have a fascination with that period. So many of my books, 50s, are flashback to the 20s or the 40s. A simpler time in many ways, but also because of the lack of communication, you know, and it was often easy to lose track of people. I think that's often a very good plot twist as well. But it was a time when women were were really on the emergence. There was a seismic cultural shift going on. While the men were away at war, you know, the women were, were working, they were holding down the fort, they were, and then afterwards, either through circumstance or choice, you know, many of them continued in the workforce and laid the, the groundwork for where we are today. So I write about women who were very who are very determined, who are creative, but who are, and who are resilient, and they're forging their own path. So that's what you'll find in uh, a common thread throughout all my books. Roselle Lim's first fabulist, that's fabulist L-I-S-T rom-com, called Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune, was picked up for TV. And it's highly likely the second will have the same success getting to the small screen. It was picked up by one of the Shondaland editors and recommended as suitable for TV. And we'll have to watch and see what happens next. That's a wonderful success for a writer starting out early in her career. But Rizal put in a dedicated apprenticeship to achieve her, quotes overnight success. She wrote eight manuscripts before she found a publisher. So I asked her, how did she keep going during that period of almost constant rejection? Sheer stubbornness. You can accomplish so much if you're just stubborn enough to to think that you will eventually get there. And that is the one piece of advice. Like it's you can call it perseverance. You can call it stubbornness or bullheadedness. But it's this, this idea that you will eventually get there if you just try hard enough and just keep writing. Both of Rizal's books are rooted within a boisterous Asian family, riven with intergenerational obligations, strong, sometimes overwhelming affection, and a love of food. Lots of beautiful stories about food. 
One senses a strong personal element in both the family background and the love of food. That is a very meddling, loud family, like extended family, which I would kind of, I'd say loosely based on my family (laughs) and that they love, they love hard. They love big. And it's, it's that they'll smother you with love and you know that their intentions are just, they want the best for you. It's just, the, you know, what they think is the best for you may not necessarily be the best for you, but you know they're, they're coming at it from a position of love. New York Times bestselling author Alison Pataki has made it her specialty to discover the relatively unknown women of history whose lives changed the course of empires, but whose names have largely been forgotten. Women like Desiree Clary, the first love of Napoleon's life. She might have ended up as the first empress of France if he hadn't have met Josephine, but she went on to found a famous royal house which still exists today. In her recent book, The Queen's Fortune, Alison tells the story of this fascinating historical figure and explains why she deserves to be remembered. And you're exactly right. So Desiree Clary was. Napoleon's first love, Napoleon's first fiance. She was a naive young girl and he was an upstart, unknown, penniless Corsican refugee when they had this really torrid love affair during the the dark days of the French Revolution. They became engaged. And then what happened was Napoleon went off to Paris to try to make a name for himself in this new French government. And she really occupied a higher rung on society's ladder at that point. She came from a higher social status. She had more personal wealth. She had like better connections. And Napoleon really was a a virtual unknown at that point. But what happened was Napoleon goes to Paris and finds himself kind of at the center of things as the French Revolution is crumbling. He finds his star on this suddenly very, very dramatically upward trajectory. He rises in Parisian society and in Parisian power structures and, and comes into the path of this beautiful, sophisticated, alluring Parisian socialite named Josephine, who obviously we all know will go on to become Napoleon's empress. But Desiree gets the last laugh, doesn't she? She's pulled into this imperial power clique and into these unbelievable geopolitical circumstances and goes on to live this fascinating life and ultimately, I think, has the last laugh against the man and woman who broke her heart. And as you said, goes on to found a dynasty of her own that still that still reigns to this day. And so here was a woman who was really situated at, at the center of history. She not only had a front row seat to some of the most dramatic moments in history, but was actively shaping them. And yet, as you said, so few of us know her name and her history is not as well known as these others. On a more personal note, In her intimate memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places, Alison catalogued her own journey through rough waters. She recounts the day it all began. We were 30, we were expecting our first child, and we were taking a trip on an airplane for what we call our baby moon. Our last trip before we gave birth to this baby and life changed. And my husband, who, as you said, was a healthy surgeon, lifelong athlete, never smoked, ate annoyingly healthy food. He just, he turned to me on the plane and he said, does my right eye look weird? 
and his right eye looked incredibly weird. The pupil, the black had taken over his entire eye and it was just the right eye. And it was very, very disconcerting. And I just threw out the most outlandish thing I could think of thinking that he, you know, the doctor who sees gunshot wounds would say, oh no, no, calm down. You're, you're overreacting. But I just said, Dave, are you having a stroke? And he said, I think I might be. And then a few minutes later, he closed his eyes and lost consciousness. And, and so at that point, we didn't know if he would survive. We didn't know if he would wake up. He was in a coma. And ultimately what happened is when he did wake up, he woke up in a state of complete amnesia and he couldn't remember anything. And he certainly couldn't make memories from, from day to day. And so, as you said, you know, I didn't, Dave wasn't there. Dave woke up, but that wasn't the Dave that had gone to sleep. That wasn't my husband. That wasn't the father of this baby that was coming. And so as a way to sort of process and try to make sense and also in the hopes that maybe someday Dave would be with it enough to ask about everything that we were going through, I I wrote him letters. I wrote him daily letters. And I never intended for it to turn into anything. The memoir that came out of this journaling and letter writing process, Dave's book of fan mail, ultimately became the book, Beauty in the Broken Places, an account of a journey which has reminded thousands of other people going through tough times that they are not alone. Belinda Alexandra is one of Australia's best-selling authors, known for her sweeping historical sagas, but her latest book, The Mystery Woman, has been labelled Australian Gothic. It's a small-town mystery influenced by classic noir and Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Belinda talks about why she's made this change from sweeping sagas to a small-town Gothic story. I think there comes a time in every author's life, especially when we've written quite a few books, that there's that other book inside of us that we want to write. And I had been very, very influenced by those classic noir mystery stories. My mother used to like gobble those down (laughs) and I used to watch them with her when I was a child. And so I think I always had that desire in me to write something more contained. And so it was really an opportunity to do that, to just, I think we like to stretch ourselves as authors and to do something a bit different. So I really wanted to create a story that was in a sort of more claustrophobic environment in a small Australian town and the kind of sort of thing that you could imagine that you would watch on TV looking through your you know, your fingers with a sense of suspense and, and atmosphere about it. When we talk about gothic, a lot of the time people get confused by that term. They think it might mean vampire novels or um, horror fiction. But a classic gothic story is really a story that has elements of suspense and it usually has a, a setting that could be naturally beautiful, but it sort of has a sense of foreboding about it. And you've got a damsel in distress and always the troubled male protagonist and a beast somewhere. Either it can be a beast within or an actual sort of physical beast, a wolf or or something else that's creating terror. Linda has also written a non-fiction book, The Divine Feline, which is extremely popular with the millions of cat lovers out there. Here's what she's got to say about her passion for cats. I have loved cats since I was a child. They've always been an animal. I mean, I love all animals, but cats have been the animal, animal that I've grown up with. And it really occurred to me that 
you know, there's that stereotype of the crazy cat lady. And I just wanted to challenge that because I think that's taking away joy from something that gives women a lot of joy. And I also think the stereotype is an attack on women's independence because in a way it's sort of, there's that horrible story of, well, if you don't get married and have children, you're going to end up this that crazy woman who's going to be living by herself with just her cats and then you'll die and no one will know you'll die and your face will be half eaten away by your ravenous cats. And it's sort of this warning about women being um, independent. And studies have actually shown that women who love cats, far from being hoarders and, and loners, are actually quite social and they're socially aware, they're cultured, they tend to be educated. And so I really wanted to break that stereotype. So in the Divine Feline, I, I go through the history of women and cats from ancient Egypt through the Middle Ages to the present time to show why that strong bond is there and why it's been denigrated. Because in a sense, it's not just women who love cats that are attacked by that image. It's, it's women in general. But there's also lots of fun in the book. It's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a compilation of things that cat lovers in general would love. So there's the history of, of cats from ancient Egypt. There's my own personal memoirs of growing up with cats and there's all sorts of humour about famous people and their cats and, and advice on cat behaviour and other tips and so on. Di Morrissey is the out-and-out out queen of Australian popular fiction with 3.5 million books sold and her latest, Before the Storm, debuting at number one for Australian fiction just in November of this year. She's published one of her page turners every October for 28 of the last 29 years, but she's also much more than Australia's top popular novelist. She's a dedicated local newspaper editor and a committed environmentalist who in 2019 was awarded Australia's top honour, made a member of the Order of Australia for services to literature, conservation and the environment. But when she started out, she had to battle prejudice about popular fiction first and women authors second. A critic called her books, which were outselling the literary books in their thousands, as hairspray on the page. Here's Di talking about the battle of those early years. I had the two things going against me. I was blonde. And I'd worked in television. I was a breakfast television host. So it's like I have wanted to write books since I'm seven. I've now had a big career as a journalist, a big career as a diplomat's wife living all over the world. I've raised a family. I'm in breakfast television. I got that job because I thought you start at 2 a.m. and you're on air from 7 to 9 and then you go home. But, of course, I was there all day and had to go and, like, see movies and or interview people at 11 o'clock at night. So after eight years, I just went, you know what, I'm going to be 40 in a couple of years. This is ridiculous. So what happened to the dream of the seven-year-old? So I just... I just quit. So then, of course, in the press, it's like, oh, well, she's too old for television now, so she's the poor girl's going to try and write a novel. So, you know, that was, that's, and that, uh, that at that point, Australia was, and to a certain extent still is, quite literary uh, snobs. And so serious writers from Patrick West, you know, on were not taken um, very seriously. And my friend Bryce Courtney, 
was we were the Mr. and Mrs. Popular Fiction, as Bryce used to call us, and we were never invited to the literary festivals to to speak. I mean, we did sell ten times, I suppose, what a literary or more what a literary writer might might sell. So then, there was another reason to be viewed with some, you know, suspicion and envy, I suppose. But it can't be any good if it sells a lot of books. So, I mean, that was very kind of outrageous. And there's a wonderful agent here called Selwa Anthony still going on. And Selwa had some wonderful clients. She looked after Colleen McCullough, for example. And she started a campaign with my first book of trying to bring down the barriers from popular fiction. And, you know, the first one I went to was so uncomfortable. I was so, I mean, people were frankly, you know, downright rude. So anyway, I ignored that and said, well, I'm never doing one again. But after a number of years, I think I was earning my stripes and I did get to go to the Adelaide, very impressive, popular, wonderful literary festival in Adelaide. And I'm standing on the, the stage next to Margaret Atwood and Isabella Allende. And I thought, <laughs> Take that, folks. (laughs) As I've already mentioned, memories of those days are long gone. She's now a celebrated Australian, but for people outside of Australia who may not understand the full significance of the awards, I asked her, what do they mean for her personally? I I was absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, it is, I think, Australia's most prestigious awards and they're Uh, You know, there's the AO, the AM, which is what I had the middle of Australia, and then there's an OAM, which is the Officer of of Australia. And it is recognition. I mean, it's apparently a very extreme, you know, process to look at your body of work. I mean, it's just a huge honour that, that, you know, you and it is given by the Governor-General of of Australia or the state. Yeah, it's just a massive award, which really meant an awful lot to me because my publisher had said, you are never, ever going to win any award because people are snobby and they only give them to, you know, literary people, so don't ever get your hopes up. So, I, you know, longer. Anyway, I also got the Lloyd, two years previously, I got the Lloyd O'Neill Prize for from the Publishing Association of Australia, for which is also very few women have, have been presented with that. Ruth Park, I think, was the last one. So that was a massive honour. Yeah, I feel that I've arrived and that I am taken somewhat seriously. And, you know, that I also, you know, I give talks at the National Library of Australia and, you know, that's very, very nice to, to do that, to feel that you have something that people want to hear. Karen White writes a mix of historical and contemporary fiction designed to tug at your heartstrings. Karen says she likes to write the sorts of books she likes to read, books that will make you laugh, make you cry, and if they also make you think, all the better. The Last Night in London, her most recent one that we talked about on the show, is a time slip story that moves between the London of the Blitz and present day, presenting a fascinating snapshot of how Londoners used fashion to show their disregard for Adolf Hitler. There was an undercurrent of defiance in the nightclub scene in London, and continuing to look beautiful was a way to show Hitler they were not going to give in. Here's Karen explaining how that mindset worked. 
I came across, it's a coffee table book that had been written to go along with an exhibition somewhere, you know, one of the art museums in London, and it was called Fashion in, oh, and again, I have it somewhere, Fashion in an Age of Crisis or something like that. And, and it was, and it showed all these, you know, these gorgeous gowns. And I mean, I was just shocked that, you know, this was, this was wartime, but you know, people were still dancing. People were, I mean, they had to be more careful about it. And, you know, but there was also the romance of it, you know, the men in uniform, it was the thing to go out and be glamorous. And it really was an exciting kind of time. And I was just mesmerized that this, this glamorous life could, could, could continue in such a fraught time, such a dangerous time. You know, the red lipstick, that because, you know, Hitler didn't want any, you know, hated makeup on women. And I'd like to think that, you know, that was part of the, the British people's way of saying, you know, go away. The whole, all of Europe was, was looking at England as their last hope. There's a fabulous book that I read while writing Last Hope Island by Lynn Olson. It is nonfiction, but it was all about how Europe fell, how the exiled governments were all in London. And Winston Churchill was like, okay, so we're being bombed. Just keep calm and carry on. And, you know, the people did that. And that meant putting on your red lipstick. It meant curling your hair. It meant, you know, if you can't get nylons and you're going to, you know, same in the States, you're going to draw, you know, draw the line down the back of your, your legs and you would make do because you were doing it for the boys, you know, basically, you know, it's very sexist now, but, you know, back then women were not allowed into combat. So, you know, that, that was our way of, showing Hitler and, and showing a support for the boys and, and also doing, doing our part. And by our, I meant females, you know, they really played such a large part in uh, the war effort and, you know, they, they did their best to look good while doing it. Very sexist, but you know, it worked and there was something, and, and I'm going to try, I'm trying not to mess this up, but Vogue magazine continued to put out magazines throughout the war you know, even with the paper shortage and everything else, because the government knew that keeping women excited about fashion and trying, you know, they might make their own, you know, clothes out of whatever they had to look fashionable. But that was like they knew keeping up the women's morale would also help with the war effort because they were looking good for the guys. So, you know, I just thought it would also keep the economy going because they would, you know, try to buy what they could, you know, and then make do, you know, trying to look like these fashion models in Vogue magazine. The story behind The Last Night in London has some great descriptions of 40s fashion. The gowns, the evening bags, the accessories that the women wore to maintain their spirits. And I asked Karen if she'd known a lot about the fashion of the period before she started out. Beautiful beautiful gowns and fashion was from my grandmother's trunks in her Mississippi house. So my grandmother had five daughters growing up in the fifties in the deep South. If you can even imagine the dresses they have and my grandmother saved them all with <laughs> tissue and all this other thing. And I just, you know, the long gloves and, you know, the handbags, the head fashions, everything. I, you know, my cousins and I, my girl cousins and I would just be ecstatic, you know, when we'd go visit our grandmother because she would let us put them on and it was, you know, our own little fashion show. So I've always had, you know, an interest. 
So that's it, the best of binge reading 2021. I hope you've enjoyed the show. In two weeks' time, we'll be posting the best of all time episodes, the shows that have made the top 10 out of the 200 episodes we've posted so far. It's free for everyone to access. We'll also be posting, as I've mentioned before, weekly updates of the Getting to Know You 5 Quickfire Questions for exclusive bonus content for Patreon supporters. Five quickfire questions from Karen White, Belinda Alexandra, William Kent Kruger, and Sarah Penner. If you'd like to have access to those, then join Binge Reading on Patreon for the cost of a little less than a cup of coffee a month. That's it for now. Happy New Year, and see you next time.